Hello and welcome to the Kane and Rinse Podcast, Volume 12, Issue 596. We're nearing our 600th issue. Today we will be talking about Norco. My name is Ryan Zhao and I'll be your host for today, your Norco Dorco, if you will, which uh, in fact is the uh, the band in which composer Danny Elfman got his start. Oh, I promise no. that uh, <laughs> all of the information that I give you will be at least 80% correct today. Uh, joining me today, we have an expert on adventure games from Norco to Zorco, Jesse Fuchs. Hi! He stays up late at night playing the game, which I suppose would make him a Norcoleptic. John, 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 Saman. Hello! And, of course, our American bird, less terrifying, but equally as powerful as Superduck, Leah Haydu. Man, I wish I had laser eyes. That'd be sick. <laughs> oh, a lot can happen over the course of the podcast recording. Let's check <laughs> that's, that's in afterwards. True. <laughs> Norco. Norco. Uh, this is a point-and-click adventure game and uh, very, very story-heavy. So as such, we need to give a spoiler warning up front. This is definitely a game that can be spoiled. Uh, potentially not by me, though. I don't know if I have a firm grasp of everything that happened in this game, despite having played it and reviewed it for uh, before the show. But um, it's uh, uh, we'll get into it. There's a lot of magical realism. There's a lot of uh, uh, kind of a mystic semi-reality is going on. And so we'll do our best to kind of reconstruct as we go. But spoiler warning up front, there are some some fun and terrifying discoveries to make in this game. This was developed by Geography of Robots, which is a five-person studio in Louisiana, which is where this game is set. Uh, this is their debut title. This one was published by Raw Fury, and it was released on PC and Mac in March of last year, 2022. And it followed up on PS4, PS5, Xbox One, and Xbox Series on uh, November 17th, 2022, which is a year and a day before the day of recording. Fun little life day trip there. Uh, this was designed and programmed by uh, two individuals named Yutz and Aaron Gray. Uh, a few of the members of this team go by what I have to assume are pseudonyms, uh, but we will respect that decision, of course. Uh, the art is by Yutz and Jesse Jacobi. This music was composed by, and I'm going to do my best here, Gugali the first Gugali I. So, I <laughs> so you see, Ryan, it's a pun googly eye oh of course uh -huh. of course googly eye that's okay you see again i've proven <laughs> i'm not clever enough to uh to talk about such a complex game to be fair i wouldn't have known that if i hadn't um i i hadn't watched um a couple of videos on this like oh that's what that is <laughs> yep so i i appreciate it we would have gotten some uh some indignant <laughs> letters i think as far as reviews go, this has a Metacritic of 89 amongst professional reviewers and a user score of 7.3, which is very respectable. You can see it uh, trending slightly lower amongst users than the professional critics. And uh, we might get into some of the reasons why there, but uh, in both cases, very, very respectable scores, uh, especially for a debut project. No sales information on this one as a digitally distributed title. Um, but let's talk about some of those genres and influences. Of course, from a mechanical perspective, this is a fairly straightforward point-and-click adventure game in the style of, uh, of the point-and-click adventure games of the uh, 80s and 90s. Uh, but from an aesthetic perspective, this is, 
I would call a near future, dark, urban, grunge, sci-fi, southern, gothic, neo-noir. Rose right off your tongue. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, it, you know, that common genre. Directly influenced by uh, games like Deja Vu from 1985 and Snatcher, which we covered in Canon Rinse 142. That is a 1988 Hideo Kojima game. Um, outside of game, Yutz worked for the city of New Orleans in geographic information systems. And so a lot of the, a lot of the kind of structural, uh, detail that this game goes into is probably informed by, uh, by their time actually working for the government of Louisiana. Influenced by scholar Mike Davis, a Marxist writer and activist and an urban theorist as well, uh, known for his work about social class and power hierarchies in urban settings. It's famous for books such as The City of Courts and Late Victorian Holocausts. Uh, these are not cited as influences, but uh, this is clearly a contemporary of games such as Kentucky Route Zero, which we have covered on Canaan Rinse in the Past, another great kind of magical realist, Southern Gothic, uh, semi-horror-tinged point-and-click adventure game, uh, as well as Disco Elysium, a game that has a lot of both a, a similar structurally curious political perspective, as well as a lot of point and click history in its its CRPG veins. Uh, you could see those, those genres really kind of merging into one in uh, in Disco Elysium. Uh, any other points of influence that we want to call out? Yeah, the the thing that I would add into that is, I, I mean, this thing has Blade Runner written all over it, right? Like, yeah, it's yeah. it's a it's a more southern take on it but clearly with the kind of near future and um grunge but also there's robots and also there's class struggle and also maybe you can't trust the robots um spoilers for blade runner i guess um but <laughs> yeah i i that's the thing that really stood out to me I, also you mentioned the kentucky route zero uh connection already um but that that really stood out to me, I think it, it just it felt very similar. I'm not sure if there was if the creators, if Yutz um, had played that or, you know, was taking that into account. But it it felt very similar in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, the one person I thought of was in, you know, Phil Dick in general. I mean, Blade Runner, but also mm -hmm. when when you had the badly versioned uh, mind you know, drive or whatever, that was mm -hmm. kind of straight out of Ubik or that that just kind of really crappy mind-blowing technology but so hum ho hobbled by capitalism that it's just depressing there's that whole kind of genre of like i call them like trash can on fire movies where it's you know, like mm -hmm. super mario brothers the movie of like just kind of a future a future uh with um some aspirational technologies around the periphery but mostly it's just kind of a hellscape to live in not a connection that i thought we'd be making but it's actually not <laughs> wrong <laughs> well, that movie was made by the people who made the Max Headroom TV show, which definitely it? would fit into. Yeah, it's huh. good movie, but it's a weird movie <laughs> with an angle and uh, definitely fits into that. Yeah, yeah. There is a 20 minutes into the future. Yeah. Vibe to this. Max Headroom certainly has that kind of mind blowing, mm. but depressing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's kind of interesting to me because like you've mentioned sort of near future multiple times with like. The Blade Runner connection, and I think I don't know the the dates for the kind of the original Blade Runner story, um, but the movie was what 
early 80s and set in like 2019 so it's like 35 years or something into the future oh yeah no it it would not actually be near future if we're going by original dates but that's the vibe that they were going and it's, for it's got that kind of thing which i'm yeah. i'm also gonna blame or like play lay on this as well it's like if you told me that norco was 35 years in the future it's like okay so by that point they've got very very advanced like robot ai structures and whatever the hell super duck and the um all the stuff that goes around that is and you're like okay that's 35 years in the future i'd be like oh yeah absolutely by whatever how many when's 35 years in the future from now 2060 i'd be like yeah for sure that that's definitely what it could be like and then oh we'll have super ducks and then what's the what's the chance that when we actually get to 2060 there's none of that stuff. Like, we still don't have robots and flying cars and all the <laughs> things that Blade Runner was like, yeah, 35 years. We could put a man on the moon, but we still can't have a super duck. Exactly. I mean, if you really want to look at the, the depre- one of the depressing parts of it, it's just a, 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 an acknowledgement that nothing's going to change in, in that. Ra- it's it's. It is set in the future, probably, but what it really looks like is it's set in the present, just with some future technology sprinkled throughout, Mm -hmm. because so much is just always the same, or always seems like it's the same, if you are in certain situations, like, for instance, living in a town that is overshadowed Mm -hmm. by an oil refinery. It's not even that they're saying, oh, well, this is all still going to be, we're still going to have oil in the future. It's just that it's more just, like I said, I just nothing is changing because it feels like they are stuck in the same place. And maybe it is different in other towns or, you know, you kind of get the, um, you don't get much of Kay's story before they, um, before they start like the, the whole, uh, story of the game, but there are some references to something outside this town, like whether it was a war, an actual war, or whether it was just some kind of guerrilla stuff. Like Kay is out there fighting before this, right? So, like, there could be a completely different world outside of this area that you are exploring within the confines of the game, but here. Everything is just recognizable as well. This is this is what it looks like today, except also robots. Yeah, I, I get the point. It's like yeah, Norco is kind of like a scar on the landscape that maintains or like retains mm. itself where everything else moves on. You know, like the yeah, you know, the sort of the cities in India and China that are just devastated by them having some sort of massive industry, and it's just like everything is fifty years behind, and the people are just dying. Like that's exactly the same situation. But they just can't move on from it. Or like places that have been, you know, historically coal mining towns forever that just get gutted and the land is poisoned and everybody's out of work because the coal mines stopped when they got like enough of the coal out that there's no point in them being there anymore. And it's just like that town and that local area and all of those people are just ruined by lack of anything else. And it's that's exactly what Norco or the city and the game kind of feels like. Yeah, and... On a more prosaic level, also, like, a lot of America in the 90s just looked like the 70s because of sheer inertia and things like, right? Like, you know, this stuff just sort of sticks around, the decor sticks around, what ends up in magazines or sort of being represented as that time period is, you know, usually uh, the most modern version, but 
you know, I covered that computer games, the 80s class. We actually do Deja Vu, which is a, a cutting edge Macintosh game that is very good. The one they uh, referenced earlier from 1985. Uh, but that's a Mac game from 1985. And, you know, there's Apple II games for educational stuff going into like the mid 90s. Uh, and those games look like 1979. And those computers just kind of got handed down from school to school and would be exactly, you know, the equivalent of the kind of thing that might end up finally in a, a depressed area like this and essentially be 20 year old technology that has just arrived because, you know, uh, it trickles down, as the Republicans like to say. <laughs> On the other side of this game's lineage, uh, we should it's a little bit too early to start talking about uh, influences that it had on other games. This game is only a year old at this point, um, but sequels are expected, uh, so to speak. Yutz, one of the, the head designers, uh, noted that this is intended as the first game in a trilogy. So we may be seeing more from the town of Norco in the uh, in the future. But at this point, it is too early to say what, uh, what long term impact it will have. Let's get into our individual histories, and then we can talk about uh, some of that real-world context that ties into that uh, that conversation. Um, so, uh, Leah, let's let's start off with you. Where did you first hear of this game, and how did you end up coming to play it? Uh, well, I played it f specifically for the show, but I owned it before that, so I... I'm not 100% sure where I first encountered the game, but it was probably some kind of in indie showcase or, um, you know, I, I heard about it on a podcast or a, a video or something along those lines and thought, oh, that looks interesting. And then, you know, didn't really touch it until it came, it came time to um, go for uh, podcast preparation, but I played through the game and have watched, you know, some some uh, videos and and such about it uh, since then. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm eager to kind of chat about it and see because I, I know that there are some uh, instances in which your choices, this is not a your choices matter in quotation marks game, uh, but there are a lot of choices that you can make. And some of them do lead to what seem like significantly different outcomes, notably the ending. But um, so I'm kind of curious to, to hear what, what became of uh, the characters that other people were playing here. Jesse, how about you? Yeah, this is a game that I, I think I bought more or less when it came out, just surely on reputation and accolades from here. You know, it got uh, an IGF nomination and it, it won that Tribeca Award. And uh, I think Cameron Kunzelman wrote a really positive review. And it was just one of those like, OK, I should I should uh, play this sooner rather than later. I played maybe the first half hour, liked it, and then just kind of it was it was right when I had gotten my Steam Deck and I ended up just playing a lot of uh Dominion and uh, Slay the Spire Downfall. And we'll, we'll talk about that in two weeks, uh, my Slay the Spire issues. Yeah. And then I went back to it for this podcast. So I started playing it about a week and a half ago and, and sort of took my time and, and just nibbled at it until the last two days when I finished off that third act. And yeah, I, I have not gone back. I, I, I got my ending and we will talk about that. And maybe I'll go back and try to get a different, less completely I didn't realize I was making a meaningful choice, let's just say. Mm. If someone asks you to sit in a chair, you just sit in a chair. Ah, <laughs> uh, you got the same ending I did, I see. Uh, well, yeah. I, I played this one through through Game Pass on PC. Uh, I 
I, I, I'm a huge fan of Kentucky Route Zero. And so I was really kind of a, a, a real mark for, for this type of game. Like uh, Kentucky Route Zero is kind of a all timer top 20 game for me. Uh, and so anything that kind of scratches the same itch, perhaps I, I was really in the uh, in the barrel for. So, yeah, this game, I, I believe it launched into Game Pass at the time of its release. And so it was really convenient for me to to play at that time. It took me quite a while to get through it, though. I I think I, I really enjoyed the first act, I would say, and then started to have more trouble uh, personally, which we'll, we'll get into it. I, I, I kind of ran out of steam on this one and ended up kind of powering through the end, ended up completing it in January of this year, uh, a few months after I had started it. But um, but we will get into more of that journey as it goes on. Uh, John, how did you come to this one? So this is a really weird one for me, actually. Like The reason that I'm aware of this game is because there is one of my favorite bands, a like Louisiana, I, I don't know how to describe them. I think like the most common term would be like sludge metal but like kind of noisy like doomy groovy metal band called thou who i've been a fan of for a number of years for some reason i think that they have the track that plays over the end credits of norco is by them and they got onto the soundtrack which i own the vinyl of which is only one of about four or five video game soundtracks i actually have on vinyl throughout my fairly embarrassingly large collection of vinyls but the the vinyl is a double split with the the actual soundtrack by googly eye and then the second vinyl is basically a thou album i believe of tracks that aren't anywhere else on any of their other massive like they're one of these bands that they put out multiple albums constantly they've done like cover albums and stuff so I, I believe the tracks on here are completely independent and they are in some way kind of connected to the game, like inspired by the game. But it's obviously like themes that go between their kind of body of work and and the stuff that's discussed within within um, Norco. So I remember them announcing that they were doing like a split album with the composer of this. And I was like, oh, I'm very interested in that. And I was very vaguely aware of the game. I think not long afterwards when it was being previewed, I, I heard somebody, probably someone like Austin Walker talking about it in the way that he often very enthusiastically, uh, enthusiastically discusses kind of anti-capitalist kind of works, you know, similar to what I would have heard about like uh, Disco Elysium and probably Kentucky Route Zero and being a, very, very big fan of both of those games. I think this was like from everything that I'd heard about it was kind of sounded like it was right up my alleyway. So I, it was, it was something that was on my radar for a little while before it came out. The original PC release, as you say, it was dropped onto Game Pass immediately for PC, which I had access to, but I tend to not play very many games on my PC. And I think at that point they had already said like console versions will be coming fairly soon. So then the console versions got dropped and it was eight months or something. I hadn't had a chance to check out the PC. I was like, okay, well, now I can sit on my couch and play it on the Xbox. Then that's probably a better solution. So, I mean, funnily enough, we are literally recording a, a year and a day after the console versions came out. Um, it took me a little while before I actually sat down and did it. Um, so we're looking at January this year. 
yeah, I, I had a, a very slow kind of methodical play through the game, doing a lot of like extra bits and pieces to see other other scenarios and to see some of the other dialogue that you can miss. Um, but it, overall, it took me like a couple of weeks to get through it. And I think my, my clock on the game was about 13 hours in total. That's been basically it. I, I was planning to do a proper replay for this this episode of the show, but like <laughs> sort of the same. I think I had exactly the same thing about Kentucky Route Zero. These games and Disco Elysium also do this thing to me where I load them up, it kind of gets to the title screen, the music starts, and it just immediately bums me out. I'm like, oh yeah, like I really like this, but also it just like drags up all the memories of playing and the kind of the emotions and stuff that are attached to it. So I started messing with this and kind of felt a little bit like, uh, I don't think I've got the whatever, like the mental fortitude right at this moment to do to do another playthrough of it and to kind mm. of see all this again. And I think we we'll discuss that there are things about this game that are not particularly uh, intuitive and bits of it that are, are kind of a bit more of a struggle to get through. And I kind of booted it up and just yeah, was just reminded of everything and thought, ah, uh, maybe I just just watch a few videos and stuff before before the show to just refresh myself so that's the position that i'm coming to now like i apologize in advance if there are bits i'm hazy on because it has been 10 months nine months since i actually did a full playthrough that's right we'll get through it let's talk about some of the real world context around this game there's some fascinating history uh, around the city of norco which is a real place a lot of these you know future futuristic uh, sci-fi dystopia types of games often set themselves in fictional locations. This one is very much grounded in a real location. And while the events are fictional, there are some echoes of Norco's actual sordid history uh, that make their way into the game in, in one way or another. So a little bit of uh, an incomplete history of Norco, Louisiana. It was originally called Sellers, but it was purchased in 1911 by the Shell Oil Company and named for the New Orleans Refining Company, or Norco. Uh, so unfortunately, capitalism ruined its name twice. Shell Oil is represented in this game as S.H.I.E.L.D. Uh, that is the the big corporation that controls the city and has this giant refinery. So a very, very thinly veiled uh, nod to the actual capitalist overlords of, uh, of real Norco. It has an approximate population of 3,000 residents as of the 2020 census. And uh, the area that is considered actual Norco is only uh, 4.04 square miles, which is 10.45 kilometers squared. Uh, a fairly small space. Um, this is the uh, this was the site previously of the largest slave revolt in U.S. history, the German Coast Uprising in 1811. It was not confined to just this area, but it was uh, this area was a part of the uh, German Coast Uprising in 1811. Um, though it was a short-lived and unsuccessful revolt, only two white men were killed and 95 slaves were killed in the revolt. It was a uh, uh, a very tragic historical occurrence. Um, there are two explosions that uh, were caused by the shell plant in Norco. And these are kind of um, the big touchstones of Norco history, according to the, the residents. They kind of ground a lot of their memories and, and um, a lot of the kind of city history around these occurrences. Uh, the first one in 1973 
A 16-year-old Leroy Jones was cutting grass for a neighbor when the shell plant released a plume of gas. A spark from the lawnmower ignited the gas, and the flame engulfed both Leroy and the neighbor. And in 1988, an explosion without a known cause at the shell plant again killed seven shell workers, destroyed homes in the Diamond community, and released 159 million pounds of chemical waste into the atmosphere. Uh, residents still suffer from early illness and deaths as a result of the toxic fumes. 34% of children in the Diamond area suffer from asthma. 25% of women and children have to visit the hospital due to respiratory problems at some point. In 2002, a group called the Concerned Citizens of Norco negotiated with the Shell Corporation to create two programs. One is the Property Purchase Program, which allowed citizens to sell their homes to Shell for a fair price uh, to escape the area, and the Home Improvement Program, which designated that the uh, Shell Company provides funds for improvement of the Diamond community. Lastly, a, uh, another bit of history is that Hurricane Ida passed through Norco in 2021, damaging the oil refineries and chemical plant that then spewed toxic chemicals into the surrounding environment. So there's uh, really no catching a break for this community, unfortunately. Uh, we see a lot of themes of this kind of economically imposed kind of squalor and, and an inability to escape. Uh, a lot of uh, kind of a sense of learned helplessness from a lot of this game's characters that um, I think reflects a, a fair amount of the real situation of the people who have uh, lived in this area. It's, it's interesting to get a sense of this real world history and see how much it has informed the fiction. Oh, well, there's, I mean, there's clearly a number of characters in here who are direct analogs to these, this real world context that you're giving. I think the, the character who's the father of Kay and the husband of um, Catherine, the, the two kind of main characters died in an <laughs> accident at the plant working for them. Uh, Duck, I think said that his son died in one of the, the random kind of, accidents that occurred like some sort of explosion or something duck is dying of some sort of presumably cancer or something caused by toxic chemicals Catherine sounds like she suffered a similar fate like it's it's not mm -hmm. subtle and it's not hidden and yeah like the game goes to great lengths multiple times to kind of pound into you how like how everybody in this has just suffered atrociously thanks to the town being built with this chemical plant in it or sorry the chemical plant being built in the town the one that really stuck with me in that regard was a couple of places where Kay talks about um flooding that happened in their house and how basically it just sounds like they were so used to it that it really wasn't even registering anymore like oh well you know there's they're, the carpet's wet again, and we're just this time, at least this time it missed, you know, whatever in the house. And, and it's just, it's, I don't know if I want to, if I want to call that lear learned helplessness, but it sort of is, right? Like it's, it's mm -hmm. learned despair <laughs> because, you know, yeah. nothing, nothing good is ever really happening. So it's just kind of. It's just kind of expected that uh, so it's going to be it's going to be crap. So, you know, when it's slightly less crap, that comes off as a good thing, which is this is a really feel good episode. Mm. You guys. I think Dallas <laughs> says something very similar. There's a line where he's talking about this was his dad's house and he loves it so much, but it's it just floods constantly and it's it's horrible. 
Like it's it's very much a kind of I, I don't want to say like sort of victimhood, but these people are victims of what is going on in this town. Like, of course, and then of course with uh, Hurricane Katrina as well. Like, there's so much that that goes on here uh, from a natural disaster perspective, and then to have the kind of capitalist woes on top of that as well. Um, seems like a kind of a dangerous place to uh, to try to raise a family, but um, I, th- I think you do get those glimmers of life from the characters as well. And, and those senses of uh, kind of a community come together. And there's the, those kind of interesting balance of a kind of survivalist hostility, but also having gone through something with a community uh, ties some of those ties uh, tighter than they, they might be otherwise. So uh, we'll talk about a lot of the kind of social social commentary throughout this game. Um, but before we get into the story itself, let's talk a little bit about the gameplay from a mechanical perspective. Let's kind of ground this in a what to expect or what to expect while you're playing perspective. This is a pretty straightforward point and click adventure game. Uh, investigation on each screen. Each screen is kind of a static environment, very richly detailed with um, usually just a few kind of foreground items. And then it has a we'll talk about this more in the aesthetic section but most scenes have great big expanses of sky taking up the upper portions of the screen this is a game that really likes to have very long i don't want to say draw distances i want to say views like a like a normal human would long stretches of horizon in the far distance and uh and relatively sparse immediate details in the uh in the in the foreground um not that those they're very kind of detailed pixel art depictions of typically a very kind of small and manageable number of of things. And so, you know, oftentimes you'll have uh, like the uh, the front of a bookstore with maybe two things that you can interact with. There might be a person sitting there. There might be a door that you could walk through from an interactive perspective. We aren't looking at verb trees like you would see in maniac mansion or secret of monkey island these are more contextual actions once you hover over something that you can interact with then a uh, couple of icons will appear that will show actions that you can take it's kind of it's more in the lens of like early double fine or late lucas arts curse of monkey island or uh or full throttle uh where you you have the eyeball icon that's you know that's how you look at something you have the mouth icon which is how you like speak to something but uh, very kind of very intuitive the only area that i think is really i don't know it, it might take a little bit of getting used to from uh, a point and click adventure perspective is the way that you navigate between scenes which is this this kind of mini map in the lower right hand corner that usually features a couple of couple of blocks that signify other scenes in the immediate area that you can move between. And sometimes it takes a little bit of kind of reorientation, um, getting the mental map of the location in, in mind, but there's never that many rooms to transfer between. And so it's, it's pretty quick to get your, your sense of space and your sense of uh, being within that space, a sense of location pretty acutely nailed down. Are there any kind of details about just this, this, these core mechanics of play that uh, really stuck out to any of you? Not especially. I, I think that, like you were saying, Ryan, it's it is pretty standard uh, point and click stuff. Now I haven't played too too many point and click adventure games, but I didn't find that there was anything that was really difficult to grasp mechanically. It it, it made sense. Yeah, it's 
I think one difference between it and the LucasArts games may be that the puzzles really are just puzzle likes. They're pacing, but you're not supposed to get stuck on them at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. You're not. Yeah. It, 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 it's and there are mini games, but they're feel kind of arbitrary and just kind of they they I, I would say that this is sort of to me the weakest part of the game is that there's not much of a sense of of mechanics as metaphor in any way other mm-hmm. than uh, some of the traversal. Like th- there are ways that it can use UI. Uh, the mind map uh, is promising, but they don't really do that much. With it, you know, you it basically recapitulates information that you you learned in the narrative, which is helpful, especially if you've uh, stepped away from the game for a bit. Uh, but because you can't rotate it or anything, it's kind of difficult to look at the different connections and kind of gain some additional, you know, insight through the spatial connections that it's making. And it does seem like, uh, like I think when you look at the credits, the only design listing is for. Uh, I forget the name, the second person, the non yuts uh, code and design. And you definitely get a sense mm-hmm. that there, no mm-hmm. one was specifically kind of, I don't know, playing a bunch of different board games and like trying to say like, well, what would make sense for the little combat, you know, motif here? They went with a very straightforward and, and essentially perfunctory, you know, kind of mini game RPG system, which is a lot better than trying to do something more gamey and failing. And I think this is kind of one of the, you know, one of the improvements of this kind of game over the last 30 years is if you're not going to come up with some genuinely interesting new system, just, yeah, have some puzzle. You know, this stuff works as pacing. Like Night in the Woods kind of had the same thing where, uh, which is a game I really like, but had, you know, platforming sections that were clearly there Mm -hmm. just because like, well, you know, we can't just have another bit of story right now. What are you going to do? But it does it does make me hope that in the sequels now that they're kind of going to be working with a larger team they have someone more dedicated towards that kind of you know how how can we use verbs in a more metaphorical way or how can we use verbs to connote the theme of this story uh in ways that seems just not their concern right it, mm-hmm. they're they're getting mm-hmm. their point across in other ways this game did not feel like a game that needed combat to me. No. The, right. Which which really is something that kind of struck out uh, with what you were saying there, Jesse. Like, I, it just, it seemed like, uh, okay, well, this is here because it, question mark, has to be, I guess. Right. Uh, but yeah, that, that I, I thought that most of the mini games were pretty decent. Like, I, I enjoyed most of what they had to do there. And I don't think there's anything wrong with them, you know, poking around and trying some different stuff in that context. But the combat just was, I I mean, it was functional, but it just felt so unnecessary. I think the combat was included because uh, there's a couple of situations in which you could have reused some of the combat mechanics in non-combat situations i believe there's like a at the beginning in the tutorial there's a staring contest with your yes. your toy right. monkey with, with that your monkey, yes. teaches you the combat <laughs> mechanics in a kind of funny way but uh just to kind of elaborate on those a little bit every character has a little bit of a different way of performing in combat so the main character has like a like a almost like a game of simon uh just repeating back a pattern of icons that appear in the correct order uh it will flash through the icons, um, sometimes slowly, sometimes really, really quickly. And you have to remember which order that they were tapped in. And then there's another one that is almost kind of like a Uenden or a elite beat agents type of situation with 
rings closing in on circles that you have to click right when the ring kind of crosses the the bounds of the circle. So it's a little bit more of like a rhythm type of challenge. So which does you know, not a, translate to using a controller all that well, I found. Uh, <laughs> it, it, I mean, really... it works, but it's it would be a lot easier with a mouse and keyboard. Mm, yeah, I don't think it tells you anything deeper about Lucky's character or whoever yeah. is right. the you know, like it. It is just this interesting kind of lacuna of you get the sense of all those parts were come up with as like, well, that's the first idea you come up with. It's like good enough. And then we'll come back to it if this is sort of our focus of attention. And it just isn't. Mm. And that's fine. And again, I'd, I'd rather they be perfunctory than try to make them challenging and have sure. them be yeah. har- horrible. Uh, and I think that's a I think of this game in the context of having played, I think, like three years ago, right around now was I have no mouth and I must scream, which was another kind of dark, but also kind of, you know, funny uh, sci fi point and click adventure. I do think we've evolved a lot in 30 years, just in terms of like, this game has a much more coherent tone than that game did. And I think there's things that just like it gets right a, a lot of evolution. But mechanics, mm-hmm. it does feel like these kind of adventure games haven't built up that that cabinet of ingredients that someone who doesn't want to come up with brand new mechanics can kind of pilfer uh, for kind of, you know, these these metaphorical relationships are just something that that makes them not feel totally like, you know, placeholder pacing. Yeah, the the combat with the big bird at the end was really a weirdly anticlimactic. I mean, that is, I think, why I was like, yeah, fine, I'll sit in the chair. It did not uh, convey the majesty of the moment. Yeah, and it kind of felt like the the combat was fairly sparse throughout the game. There wasn't a huge amount of it, and there were plenty of points that I think there could have been combat, but you could have avoided it. So kind of finishing the game with a combat-style boss fight just, to me, seemed quite out of place like it didn't it didn't feel right like the thing that it really really chimes home with me is uh, you know another another disco elysium connection but that game did so well being an rpg without having what could be you know thought of as like proper combat or combat mechanics like everything was just dialogue choices in that game and some other things that you you know you would have done better if you'd like explored a bit and found some armor or something and I think that this game probably could be no worse for having some sort of similar system of just avoiding combat or having a a replacement that feels more sort of congruous to what the characters are doing. Like it feels, I mean, it's it's kind of weird magical realism anyway, but how the heck is your stuffed monkey like fighting off robot security guards with armor who are extremely tough? Yeah. Like it, doesn't, it makes no sense. Like, okay, lots of stuff about the game makes no sense, but some of it particularly in the combat was one of the things that really felt out of place or like weirdly. That's them trying to wink, right? I mean, that is like, it is this kind of ironic perfunctory, the boss fight at the end. I am sure if you, I think the the main problem with it, I mean, it only takes two minutes. It's not like an issue. Uh, aside from being a little anticlimactic is that this game should appeal to people who don't normally play video games and whatever Whatever resonance that mm-hmm. has, I feel like, has to do with it being sort of referential to, you know, being a, well, you know, this this game is in some ways, you know, inspired by Final Fantasy VII. It has some JRPG winks. But, yeah, it just, I, I don't know if there's a better solution, right? The thing about Disco Elysium is it has a whole skill system, and this game doesn't really have mechanics in those ways. You know, it has a, an inventory you have one or two things in. And that's, why, again, I... It's I'm not this is only partly a critique of this game and more just me kind of contemplating 
our mechanics kind of solvent to trying to tell a fairly serious story. Uh, it's like it's not like this game would benefit from having a whole skill system like Disco Elysium or something. And its mind map, I don't know, it could do better in representing those connections, but it's not like I want them to give me different powers. Like Disco Elysium has its own, you know, like Night in the Woods is maybe, and Kentucky Route Zero are, are you know, closer comparisons because they are not games with systems per se. Let's talk about that mind map a little bit. I think that's one of the more kind of interesting mechanical portions of the game. You know, it reminds me a lot of um, we're recording this while Alan Wake 2 is still kind of fresh in our minds as well. And that has a specific kind of room that each character can go to at any time uh, called the mind place, a kind of a riff on the mind palace memory technique, uh, which is like a, a literalized space that these characters can retreat to within their own imaginations at any point in their adventuring and uh, kind of put all of the details of the story that they're a part of up on the wall, run some threads between them, try to hypothesize about connections between elements and really try to get some more, some more information about what you're trying to accomplish and who the characters are and what relation they might have to each other. Uh, There's other games that have, that have tried very similar things as well. There's a hand with many fingers, which is another kind of putting files on a cork board and running threads between them and doing doing some deep research to try to solve crimes and stuff like that and so you know there's there's more and more games these days that feel like they make very intelligent use of this kind of drawing connections between materials of course early access there is shadows of doubt shadows of doubt that's the one Shadows of Doubt, yeah, wonderful detective game, proceduralized, but again, it relies on you to draw the connections yourself. Mm-hmm. That's the area that I feel like this game doesn't quite make the most of its mind map mechanic in that it's really only a place where you can just kind of get additional exposition drops. Like you click on each person's portrait, it automatically makes all the determinations as to who that character or what that object connects to within the mind map it creates this kind of really dense web of connections between characters locations and objects and uh and then it just kind of gives you some additional details that you wouldn't have gleaned otherwise without really requiring me to intuit any of it at all which in such a kind of dense and perhaps magical story uh might be a bit of a kindness in uh putting some of that cognitive work back on the shoulders of somebody who exists in this magical world rather than me who's trying to apply rules that might not necessarily apply within this alternate world it could be a little bit more mechanically engaging for what it is but i think the seeds are planted for something that could blossom into something more interesting in the sequel i think that this is a more elegant way and a preferable way for me at least to to do kind of background information than, for instance, so, so many games just do, like, audio logs or, you know, just notes left around in the environment. And I mean, there's a little bit of that in here as well. There are plenty of things that you can read that are in the environment. But this, to me, makes more sense. Like, I, I found that I was 
looking out for, you know, when the little <laughs> gives you like a little dot on on your mind map when there's something new to see. And and I, I liked that. I was like, oh, hey, cool. There's another piece has been revealed, you know, rather than having to stop everything you're doing, you can kind of pick and choose when you want to review this stuff. I don't know if you ever actually have to go into the mind map. I guess if you want to, I, I don't know why you wouldn't, but I guess if you really wanted to, you could probably skip most of that if you just weren't interested in some of the backstory. I don't know why you're playing this game if you're not interested in the backstory, but... I wonder if it supplies you with some details that you have to use in conversation in the real world as well, so that I'm, I'm not possible, sure That seems possible, because I mean, some of yeah. your... your um party members or the people that you travel with from time to time, if you get stuck, like they will tell you or mm -hmm. give you hints as to what you should be doing or where you should be going. Right. So uh, it could be just kind of like an extension of that as well. We haven't discussed it really yet, but one of the things that I really, really liked about this game was the way that certain things are written, certain descriptions are done. I think there's a, mm -hmm. um, a real kind of eloquence in a lot of the writing and a real kind of evocativeness in the way that they describe situations like the opening scene of the game with the the text and then the background which you see a lot of the like the stacks from the um the chemical plant like at night time so you've got this big landscape that's all sort of shades of dark blue and black with the um i assume they're towers like venting gas those flame stacks that you see on top of it mm -hmm. with the the colors offset by the fire which obviously like dark blue and orange are kind of opposites on the color wheel, which I think, you know, are very well known to go together very well. Like once you, that's one of those weird things. Like once I realized about the color wheel and the opposites on the color wheel, you start kind of seeing it everywhere. Like look how many video game box arts are like blue with orange on them. And you're like, Oh yeah, that kind of makes sense. Yeah. So that, that kind of imagery with the, the way that the text works here is something that I really appreciate. And the mind map is kind of just, you can, not pay that much attention to it, but it feels like it's where a lot of the the kind of the background and the the almost the lore and the story of this game are told. And I I love nothing more than reading the the sort of flowery text that they present you with here. Let's talk a little bit about that writing. Uh, that was one of the details that was perhaps the most divisive when this game was doing its rounds at the time of its launch. Um, I think I personally I really like the poeticness rather than the directness of a lot of the text and the way that this is written. Um, a lot of people called it purple prose and said that, you know, it was perhaps a little bit too flowery for, for their liking. Um, I think we don't get enough real kind of poetic writing in video games anyways. And so I'm, I'm very happy to have something that kind of mixes up the formula a little bit, gives us something that's a little bit more kind of artfully delivered rather than uh, being super direct and objective oriented the entire time. But I'm, I'm curious if we have anybody on the panel that didn't really sit with it as well as uh, as John and I might have. So I this is not this is not a uh, a counter to what you're saying. I also actually really liked it. But I, I just wanted to expand a little bit on the reason why I think that it works so well uh, is that. It, it is it feels fully intentional like this is not just oh this is the way these people write and they you know they they hadn't considered it because the dialogue that you get is frequently it doesn't match up with the style of the prose it feels a lot more real mm. and like like how these characters would actually speak and like how 
uh, people in the area or in this situation would actually speak. It feels very, very real to me and very much like, you know, I mean, obviously the, the developers are, uh, they, they are from this area. So like, this is, this is something that they have experienced firsthand. And I think that that shows in that part of the writing. So the fact that some of the background writing is so, I don't want to say flowery, because that's not really the right word, just more fluid and more descriptive. I, I think that that contrast is what really makes it work for me. I think there were there were moments. I the one I'm thinking of in particular is when you're uh, driving around in the boat and you dive into the water, and it is entirely depicted mm -hmm. through text. Where mm -hmm. I did not think it carried the weight that it was trying to carry to some extent. I think it could have maybe done with some audio visual effects along with that, or broken the text mm -hmm. up in some way, or whatever. You know that that if if people kind of had that issue that might be the kind but again it was intentional and i do think better they err in that direction uh and again i'm talking about you know uh, eight seconds each time it did all i had to do was like not read the text very closely if i didn't love it but in general i thought the writing was very you know evocative and the characters i i enjoyed a lot of the characters and again like just thinking of it in that weird context of uh I have no mouth 30 years ago and how wild the tone swings were in that game and, and how difficult it is to make a, not just a thing that's both serious and, and, you know, comic at the same time, but a point and click adventure, right? Like this has to have these, even if they're not, uh, challenging puzzles, they're, they're, they're things with the cadence of puzzles that are by their nature going to be kind of ludicrous, uh, you know, having to go around and, and, gather the voice recordings to play for this guy. And I think this game does a remarkably good job in terms of its maintaining a tone that isn't swinging wildly from one thing to another, you know, but is at least bouncing around in kind of a specified area that it has a, a good amount of control over. Uh, let's talk about other aspects of the presentation. The entire game is presented in this uh, very beautiful pixel art style. Um, I'll say the environments are very beautiful uh oftentimes featuring again large expanses of sky oftentimes with like beautiful sunset colors and and i really like you know when there's details that you could see in the background sometimes it's just kind of a few moving pixels of a smokestack in the far far distance sometimes there's birds that are flying across the sky just again two or three pixels at a time but really beautifully animated and uh, it, it brings a real sense of life and a real sense of, of beauty to the environment. But then kind of by contrast, and I, I don't mean this in a uh, in a pejorative way, but I think the characters are drawn to be very ugly. Mm -hmm. um, they're drawn to be very like, I, I would say like unflattering portraits of people that, you know, everyone kind of has a really bad haircut. Everyone has really kind of poorly maintained like skin like you get get a sense of like these i don't want to like sound like i'm hard to being too harsh on these fictional people but like there's there's an intentional choice to make these people not like beautiful or aesthetically like that pleasing yeah, they are to look not, at. they are not idealized in the same way that right. some of the actual environment is and mm -hmm. because i mean i totally agree that it's it's beautiful but it's also not like it's not perfect like mo more often than not you can see 
the towers of the oil or pieces mm-hmm. of the oil refinery in the background. So that's kind of always there. But but that that even with that, it's it's just it is really attractive to look at in a lot of ways. And then you meet these characters and it's just they're they're just people, you know, like they are not they're not um actors who are intended to be just ideal representations of whoever you would run into they're just like the dude who runs the gas station and yeah it's it's not not exactly supermodels i'll i'll say that um but you can put clown makeup on a guy and it stays on for basically the rest of the so there is that <laughs> yeah I think there's kind of an intentional ugliness. Like I think about like the curse of the golden idol from last year or two years ago, maybe uh, where people are drawn in this kind of like almost mid nineties, Nickelodeon style of being like uh, just, uh, just a touch on the more off putting than like average people might be in this situation type of type of, of style. And, And it's interesting to see such a contrast between the environments, which are so again, like so beautiful, so evocative of the environment. And then these people that feel from an aesthetic perspective to be kind of off-putting. And, and you would think about like, if if you're growing up in a, in a location like this, really what you should dislike is the environment, which is corrupted by the, the company. And what you should feel that kind of fondness for is the people are the the comrades that are mm. enduring yeah. these hardships alongside you and supporting you. And so it's interesting that from an aesthetic perspective, it kind of puts you on an opposite footing, but I don't know if that's, I, I don't know, Jesse, what do you take away from all of this? I mean, it is a kind of individualistic game, certainly compared to something like Disco Elysium or, and it, I, I I don't know how much of that. I don't think that's certainly their politics, and, and it might be sort of the formal qualities of a point and click adventure of this scale. Uh, you know, Disco Elysium is a much bigger game with a lot more characters, mm-hmm. and you know, it's still kind of a, a mini city. But you know, you get more of this kind of broad interaction. It's not entirely centered on you. But yeah, though it's it's an intro. Like I was thinking, kind of mid nineties alternative comics, also like a, a Dan right, Klaus right. kind of not misanthropy, but but certainly that sense of right looking at people like you're you're at the beach doing caricatures. I don't know. It's an it's an interesting quality of the game. It is. It certainly ties into the very Scott McCloudy way it depicts you, where you're just a not a smiley face, whatever the, the neutral face. Right? Yeah. And and your brother is the, the frowny face that, that never mm-hmm. appears, uh, but is on the mind map. And that makes a lot of sense. Like that is, again, kind of like straight Scott McCloud. You're this main character. You're just projecting yourself into that. And I think very neatly kind of details the difference between you and your brother, which is, you know, you're kind of messed in the head, but like you're not catatonic like he seems mm-hmm. to have been uh, essentially or just, you know, out of it. I liked the certainly the art style of the environment a lot, and I didn't really think too hard about about that flip. But now that you mention it, it certainly ties into there's a maybe misanthropic's too strong a word, but certainly the satirical nature of the game. There's there's characters that you you certainly feel for, but it's not. I'm trying to think of a character you would say is actually. I mean, everyone's admirable in their own way. Dallas, Dallas is completely admirable. He only listens to Christmas music. What's more <laughs> admirable than that? Maybe a little bit complicit in giving somebody terrible diarrhea, but uh, <laughs> it, 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 interesting contrasts 
with that as well is that uh, Million, the robot that you spent a lot of the game with, is really genuinely oh, beautiful. Yeah. Like this, this kind of faceless blue being that with an interesting texture that looks like uh, like galaxies swirling on the face mm. or something like that. It's it's very evocative. It's it's very beautiful. But again, that is a non-human element within this human world. Every human feels like they're kind of captured in their worst moment. And every in the robots feel angelic or kind of above humanity in a certain way. Uh, John, do you have any thoughts about the depiction of characters from an aesthetic perspective? I don't have a lot more than uh, anything that you guys have said. I think that it's kind of, it's almost kind of a pointed on the nose thing of like, these, these are not perfect people. You know, this is, these are flawed people in a flawed Mm -hmm. location and they're kind of representing the, the sort of the ugly side of human nature in a lot of ways. I mean, you look at something like the Garrett's, the, um, the cult of teenagers and it's like every single one of them is just like a sort of a sort of nerdy spotty faced teenager. And it's just like, yeah, well of course they're going to be kind of gangly and awkward looking and have bad mustaches and like acne and stuff on their faces. Like that's, that's kind of the demographic that you've got going here. These are not going to be kind of perfect looking people. And you know, everybody here is from this, like horrible, rundown, impoverished, probably like toxic area. Like the idea of having skin conditions and you know maybe some crooked teeth is is probably a, re- a good case scenario in this situation. You know we could have had you know people with like open sores and stuff on their faces, and you'd be like, well, <laughs> drinking that water with all those chemicals that are being pumped into it all the time, like it's not going to make you beautiful. But I think I think it kind of yeah, there's there's an aspect of the game where it's like the corporations behind it as much as you know the oil refinery should be this kind of ugly blight on the landscape there there is kind of an a sort of an odd beauty to it and the robots are kind of the same like you know mm-hmm. you can create the robot to look like you want you know somebody made million have this galaxy swell face that's really appealing but the humans don't have that agency. You just you just are what you are, and it's very difficult to to change that too much. And certainly for people in these kind of situations, looking flawless and having amazing skin and straight white teeth is not going to be number one on their priority list when they you know basically everybody in this game is is struggling massively even just to survive. So I think that's that's kind of the the point that is being being put across here. Let's make a a somewhat quick and abbreviated pass through the scenario. Uh, Let's introduce a few of the characters, um, some of the key players in this game story. Uh, We will hit on some of the kind of structure and some of the key points of the story, but we won't be able to make an exhaustive run through of this story detail by detail. But we'll try to we'll try to hit the major points. Uh, So before we get into the summary, let's. um, Let's again meet the key players. Structurally, this game is is uh, takes place across two time periods. So you you transition between playing as K, who is the uh, younger protagonist of the game. I don't know if a if a gender is made explicit. I, I always pictured K as being a female, but it, it, were there any details that pointed that in one direction or the other? Not that I remember. I, I could be wrong though. Okay. Yeah, I'm this. Well, I'll I'll say she because that was how I pictured her in in my mind. But I think it's just as valid to to read K as a, a male as well. It's kind of an ambiguous name. 
but anyways, Kay is the younger protagonist. She is going back home after living in Albuquerque, New Mexico. After her mother has died, she's going to try to, you know, find and, and really just be there for her brother, who she knows is potentially in a uh, more difficult state because of the mother's death than, than she would have been. So she's journeying home back to Norco, Louisiana, and uh, undergoing some investigation with regard to what happened to her mother and uh, where her brother might be, because he is, uh, he is not at home, as she was expecting him to be. Her brother's name is Blake. Her mother's name is Catherine. They have a father named Blue who is spoken about frequently. I don't believe he's ever seen, but uh, he's... No, I think there, they say that of, he has died, has he? he was killed yeah, in an accident at the, working at the oil refinery. I thought that was the, the kind of... The yeah, narrative. yeah. Right, right. A couple right. of years earlier. But I think it's kind of a notable absence from photographs or from like being pictured in the mind map. Like, I don't know if we ever get a, a view of what Blue would have looked like. So I think that there is, when you are playing as Catherine, you are kind of building this memory, this the kind of frozen mm -hmm. memory uh, for your kids, uh, so that when, when Catherine passes away, she wants this kind of memory block to be available for them. One of the interesting things that I, I still don't really know how this affects the, the story, but they give you a couple of options as to things that you can lock in as memories that you want to preserve and other memories that you want to let go. And one of them is is Kay's father, is Blue. Mm. And I don't know if that gives you I, I think that I let that one go. So I'm not sure if like you get any I, I don't know if your choice there affects how much you learn about him if if it does at all. Oh interesting. Okay. Yeah, he was very mysterious in my playthrough anyways. Yeah. And it seems like uh, different characters that I would meet had different perspectives on him as well. It was hard to get a read as to like whether he was a, a good or a bad person, really. I think it's maybe left a bit ambiguous about Blue for you to decide. And I'm not sure if the game does actually mm. like change things depending on what you do or sort of who you talk to about it. But there's a point at the end of the game where you sort of relive this dream sequence where the house is flooded and you're kind of moving through. And I sort mm -hmm. of remember in my playthrough that the blue was there, but was again, like very sort of checked out or absent or possibly even kind of, you know, abusive towards the character, the other characters. And I think there is sort of, there's a way that everybody talks about him in the game that does suggest that he maybe wasn't a, a decent guy that maybe was kind of a, you know, an right. abusive husband and father or possibly a cheater or a drunk or something that people sort of tiptoe around talking about him as if there's some big secret that nobody wants to mention mm. to either Catherine or Kay um, or like something that they don't mm. want to bring up. And that was kind of the read I got was that, oh, actually, he was a bad dude and people just don't really want to talk about him. Although Keith of Keith's Corner who knows the truth about everything, seems to regard him very highly and is the one who, right, in the parking lot, asked Catherine, like, you know, why were you mean to Blue? Or something like that. Um, and it's very awkward. I think it's, it's difficult to get the read on whether Blue is kind of not remembered because we are trying to move past a painful memory or whether his loss was too painful and people are just trying to 
uh, kind of self mediate their level of uh, of engaging with that pain. So it, it's an interesting detail. I bet yeah. that's intentional too, mm. because yeah, yeah, I, yeah. like it, it really points to, or seems like it could point to how, you know, a person who is just a person, you know, and, and is, is, um, you know, just like anybody else has their good and their bad points. You don't right. really know what's going on behind closed doors. Some people are going to see them as this great person, but maybe they're not. We don't know because nobody's talking about it. So yeah, that's that's I hadn't really thought about him that way, but uh, that makes a lot of sense. We meet Million, which is the family's robot, a a helpful companion at the beginning who ends up betraying both of the uh, the family women in both timelines, in both uh, Kay's investigation and in Catherine's investigation. So, um, yeah, ends up uh, ends up not being a friend. <laughs> But not their fault, as I as I recall, right? Like it's it's kind of it, it has something to do with their program. I I don't really remember how mm -hmm. millions uh, arc kind of wrapped up, but I I think it was not entirely just AI going bad. Like there was more behind it than that. We meet Duck, <laughs> who is a friend of Catherine's. He's in a pretty sorry state in both timelines. He's on a respirator in Catherine's timeline, and then in Kay's timeline is it, it seems pretty near death uh he is the one who's well, i guess there's a technology called the what is it the brain drive or something that um i think people can use to back up elements of their consciousness it's kind of like a hard drive that uh that you can use to store like your actual thoughts and and temperament i guess suppose but uh his brain drive corrupted and evolved into the super duck entity that went on to kind of spread throughout the city and even infect some of the natural, like the birds and animals and the environment of the, um, of the swamps. And it becomes a, a much more, um, present threat in the, in the future. I think that this was maybe one of the weaker elements of the story for me, the super duck thing, because I didn't really get why, I didn't really get why. <laughs> like, what? What is this doing? That it's yeah. I get that it's spreading, but what is it actually doing? It's kind of an interesting conceit for a future technology as something that organically grows rather than relying upon the kind of continued state of you know economic driven creation. It is a weird element. I think it kind of serves to to make a bridge between the technological side of the story and then the fiercely religious side of the story mm. um it's kind of an interesting intermediary between those two polarities but yeah from a from a storytelling perspective it's definitely a very strange occurrence um and it's it, it, that it, it it kind of starts you off on like a geocaching mission uh in like a gig economy type of uh set of of missions that you have to accomplish but uh it ends up being this this kind of godlike being towards the end of the game yeah it's it's in a game that kind of toes the line between like technology that's kind of gotten so advanced that it's slightly unknowable to i think the people in the game but certainly to like us with our understandings but also sort of toes the line with some supernatural things as well um i think it's a lot of the point of this is kind of 
you're not really supposed to understand. You're told small amounts of information about what has happened and you just kind of have to take it for granted. And I think that the, the super duck thing plays into like both sides of the storyline. It's, I mean, there are many links between the two sections of the story, which you'll discuss, but I think that's super duck being kind of the instigator for Catherine doing the things that she was doing, which Kay doesn't really understand. And then sort of coming back in later towards the end of it and tying, tying things together. I'm not going to say like tying up loose ends and stuff, because I think this game probably asks many more questions than it, it ends up answering. And I think, you know, it probably isn't particularly interested in trying to find satisfactory answers for things in the way that in real life, you can't know everything quite as smoothly as you might like to. It's not, not like a story where things are kind of wrapped up and you understand everything. You're more likely to just sort of have a resolution to a problem and it may be satisfying and it may not. And then you just have to move on because that's how things go. And it, it sort of feels like the game is playing with that idea of like, you just have to take what you're told for granted and it's not really going to make any difference either way whether you know it or not and if you did know would it bring you any closure or any happiness or really you know really be satisfying to know all of the details to everything anyway um but i think that the there's multiple interesting things about super duck i like the idea that it kind of turns into this sort of gig economy situation for these other people who are really struggling to do anything else i mean there's lots of points with Catherine where you're playing as her and she is following these quests that this app is telling her to do because it will give her some some of its cryptocurrency which will end up translating into real money and it feels like another prod you know sort of finger pointed at the idea of like hey you know gig economy is something that desperate people can do and it might work and it might not and but it, it it kind of feels like it's making a sort of a strongly kind of anti-capitalist argument of if you're so desperate, you end up doing this nonsense for no real reason that you understand. And then the, the other thing that's sad about it is, particularly like while you're playing as Catherine, I don't know if the game actually tells you how much time has passed. I'm I'm imagining it's implied to be a year or two between the sections where you're playing as Catherine and when you pick up later. But the you see at some point, and it's not mentioned, I don't think, but you see at some point on somebody's phone that the cryptocurrency is there and it's basically lost all its value whatsoever. And I think you also reintroduced to Dallas during the um, K section and he's just totally, it, like he's still kind of following the duck thing, but or like the super duck thing, but it feels like, you know, times have got in even more desperate in that situation. So it's I think it's kind of a, a sort of a weirdly, again, like sort of pointed uh, kind of, uh, what's the word for it? Like a, a criticism of, you know, this sort of thing and how desperate people are preyed on by like this new technology that people don't really understand, but can somehow use it to manipulate things. We meet Lucky, who is an eco-terrorist, a wanted man at the time that we meet up with him and uh, we use him to, uh, gosh, I believe... What was the what was the purpose that he served? I, I'm getting my I'm getting him mixed up with Peepaw no. or with Papa. Uh, getting into yeah, Shield. You break in. Okay, us. right. 
He gets yeah. in the shield. Popeye helps us get into the mall. Like, there's a bunch you, of... You find his dog by getting dog food, which you get through the store where you have to uh, right, give the right. guy the pills. <laughs> adventure game I mean, stuff. That, again, adventure like, stuff. Ow. Yeah. It's, it's an adventure yep, yep. game. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Very but it much. all adds up pretty reasonably, uh, again, given <laughs> the structure. Yeah. Popeye mentioned is another kind of... Uh, it seems like a kind of strange and unstable homeless guy potentially he helps he, he kind of presents the image of being very very hostile towards the cult of garrett's which i suppose we should explain as well we'll get back to that in a moment uh, a cult that has popped up in a uh, in a local shopping mall and we use him to get into the garrett stronghold once we get in it seems that Papa is perhaps a little bit more kind of sold into the religiosity of what they are accomplishing than we had anticipated. And uh, he ends up becoming a bigger problem um, because he, uh, I guess, fancies himself a godlike figure as well. Uh, there, there's a lot of, gosh, the religion in this game just yeah. adds so many kind of unpredictable elements that it's really hard to kind of like to try to square with a more literal understanding of the game you're the quiz at chatterock right he's more of the prophet of your your coming because you're the mm -hmm. daughter of uh yeah mm -hmm. according to him you are literally from the line of jesus christ like yeah, the okay. da Vinci, and, and, and people joke about you know stop talking about that da vinci code crap or whatever <laughs> they're referencing yeah but there's another kind of weird thing here where my reading of this is that basically poor poor is uh, a kind of a, a homeless man who, for some reason, possibly because of, you know, a psychosis or, you know, alcohol or drug problem, becomes convinced that Catherine is this, this descendant of Jesus or shares the bloodline or something. Very bizarrely, that does then feel like it starts to come true later in the game with some of the other things that happen. But kind of my read on it is more that this psychotic guy has spread this story so much and convinced all of these other cult people who are basically just they're pretty much just like pissed off teenagers who are just looking for something to do has kind of convinced them of this story and then somehow this idea has spread into super duck and then super duck being kind of this sort of so right. advanced technology kind of to the point of being magical has some actually manifested the proof that this is the case with the orb and stuff that responds to Catherine and Kay. So I think that there's not, I mean, what, hmm. what is, what's poor, poor yeah, says seems like the ramblings of a madman, but I do, I, that is my read for how it actually turns out to be true is that he's kind of manifested it through super duck. And I'm not sure if there's any evidence either way for that, particularly beyond the kind of the pieces that I put together in my head, thinking about it. Because you do end up finding this orb that I believe is like the manifestation of like the Judeo-Christian Holy Spirit. Like it, it's a, it's a really strange, really strange game. Yeah. And it's, it's linked to Catherine. Catherine is obviously spends her last days looking for this thing, probably because she was told that she needed to buy Superduck and the, the Superduck app thing. And then I, I, I don't know. It, it's all kind of just bizarre. Um, sort of weird supernatural religious stuff but i think possibly the kind of the technological aspect of it um coming through super duck makes a little bit more sense than yeah it's interesting these people are actually descended from the bloodline of jesus 
I just assumed he was telling the truth. You know, when I hear a crazy man ramble, I take it at face value until something proves it wrong and nothing ever proved it wrong. Well, I think he definitely thought he was oh, telling yeah. the truth. He seems but, sincere. Yeah, but, uh, I mean, obviously, um, well, maybe not obviously, depending on which think, but, um, yeah, he does not appear to be a, uh, I don't think he's a reliable really narrator. her papa. Oh, no. Well, he's everyone's papa. Mm, I don't know. He's more of a, I'm on his side, honestly. On the I other he... end of the spectrum, we have a couple of companions that are reasonably good dudes. Yeah. Dallas and Brett LeBlanc. Uh, Dallas, I don't remember his occupation. What was his... What was well, his he's deal? also working with the super sure. Do you ever stuff, actually find out? Yeah, yeah no, he, exactly. he had yeah, a job. You, that's when you meet yeah, him. And now he's just sort of doing gig stuff. Yeah. And then uh, Brett LeBlanc was actually a uh, like a private investigator. I don't know how employable he is, but uh, <laughs> he at least has an office that kind of overlooks the our family's backyard and is in, in a couple of cases the first to discover when things go wrong within our home. So. I guess it's just kind of a, a local PI. And I like uh, yeah. quite a lot of the comedy in the game comes from him and his kind of, uh, let's say, um, oh, what's a charitable way to describe this? <laughs> kind of out of luck situation. Um, but at least, as he states himself, he has got a clean ass when he's fighting crime. <laughs> his interactions with Catherine seemed very natural and very much like two, two middle-aged people doing a job together who, like, you know, respect each other. Like, like they're, mm-hmm. they're both decent folks and they're just both trying to get by. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it was Dallas's 49th birthday when you're playing through uh, that part with Catherine. And as someone who is about to turn 49, I was definitely like, there's a, a, a funny, uh, you know, it, it's sort of like uh, playing control and everyone calling me Jesse. Uh, <laughs> just sort of lined up nicely. And there are worse characters that you could latch onto in this game to yeah, no, love. as I said, he he only listens <laughs> he's, to Christmas he's music. Probably, he's yeah, he's probably man. one of the better, air quotes, mm-hmm. better uh, characters. Uh, we have uh, Keith. Keith, somebody else is going to have to fill in the details on this one. Oh, yeah. he's he. You find him in the bar with Brett LeBlanc originally uh, and are talking to him. And he's he he kind of fills in back information. He he knew your mom and uh, shows up in Catherine. She, he's he's in the side lot and is the one who's like, hey, why did you do blue dirty or whatever? Uh, but he is the, the local conspiracy theorist where everything he says is basically true. Uh, and he uh, one of his comic bits is that he is trying to come up with a cool name for his website that's going to tell everyone the truth and ends up coming up with Keith's Corner and has a boxing motif. And then you see, you know, uh, fighting for you in Keith's Corner uh, talking about the oil refinery explosion and, you know, what caused this and, uh, what you know, who murdered, uh, what's your name? The, the he shows lady. up a couple of times, doesn't he? Because you see him, yeah. like, in the, um, it, it, like, towards the end when when you're in the, like, the camp mm. with the, yeah, the rocket yeah. ship and everything. No, that's he, like he, he pops up there. The payoff where you see his actual, quote-unquote, you know, full production of his website. <laughs> Good for Keith. I'm yeah. pulling for Keith. He's trying. And everything he says is true. Again, yes. like, <laughs> And again, we have the cult run by Kenner John and his band of Garrett's who all dress like Best Buy employees. I mean, they're, just, they're, they're doing an Elon Musk thing here, right? Like, right. that's yeah. what yeah. this is? That. Okay. Yeah. yeah. They're all kind of well, the heavily rocket. implied to be yeah. like sort of loser incel types 
who do not exactly. take it so seriously in the slightest. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Except one of them who does take it very seriously and is very annoyed that the others are all just like playing video games and watching anime and smoking weed and doing yeah. hallucinogens. But yeah, they're, they're like a joke, except it's kind of a, an allegory about how, you know, when all these idiots get together as a joke, they can still be extremely dangerous. Yeah, they become more highly militarized towards the end of the game and end up, uh, yeah, again, posing a great danger to, to the uh, community and to the world as with uh, the real, you know, re- real groups that these are kind of allegories for. Uh, let's let's really breakneck breeze through this uh, the story. So at the beginning, again, Kay ventures home to try to find her brother following the death of their mother. Uh, her brother is nowhere to be found. And so the first portion of the game is really just kind of trying to find leads as to what happened to her brother, where her brother went, where he could be. And, and it always seems like you're just kind of like, you've always just missed him. You know, it's like a mm-hmm. Carmen San Diego mm-hmm. thing where it's like, oh, well, he was just here at this bar getting drunk a couple of hours ago. I think I saw him change his money in for Lyra, though. <laughs> <laughs> he went to a country with a flag that has a rocket on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, so anyways, we go to the bookstore. We end up petting a cat enough times that it rockets through the ceiling, which is a fun surprise. <laughs> I believe you can great. also go back here with, with Lucky's dog at some point and also scare the cat with the dog and launch it through the ceiling or like something oh. happens with it. <laughs> of course. I did not try that. Get an achievement. Oh yeah. Tom and Jerry. We switch back to Catherine in the past. I think we emerge in like a therapy session or like a, yeah. uh, like a medical. You start in the mind retrieval history. It's kind of like filling in backstory as she's reciting okay. it and sort of disorienting you. Of You kind of get popped into there. And it's going, right, what Leia was saying earlier about saving different memories and it being really unclear if that is a thing that impacts things later or just kind of feels impactful in the moment. Mm. But yeah, you're coming out of that clinic and then your adventure begins. Right. We talk about being followed by a glowing sphere in the lake. Uh, we are contacted by something or someone named Super Duck, and we uh, complete some kind of gig economy types of jobs in the Quack Job app uh, that gives us a specific cryptocurrency. We meet Dallas. He joins us on our Super Duck adventures. We end up meeting a very sketchy Santa Claus and a very sketchy hot dog dealer who says he's not had business in 10 years, but still has hot dogs that should still be good. We end up tricking Sony into eating one of them, a very adventurous eater who we return to later to find that he has had just the worst day, as you can expect. Oh, and he tells a very long <laughs> and very entertaining story about what happened after he ate the hot dog. Very yep. detailed. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's, that's one of the points where the writing really kind of stands out. So it's me spending like, Three minutes reading this story, which is basically just this guy crapping himself. <laughs> he does give you the option. To, I think I click yes or whatever, you know, go on once or twice. I was like, mm-hmm. okay, I've had an, you know, I, I get the gist, buddy. Uh, but yeah, he's, that's a good chunk of kind of like good, solid point and click fetch quest, but it's all meaningful and kind of fun and makes sense and is mm-hmm. showing you around the environment. Like, we all need to go over the yeah. details of it. But I think this game does that. You know, when it, when it's in its groove with that kind of stuff, it, it does a good balance of the inevitable silliness of fine thing to give guy, but having it actually, yeah. Yeah. You know, 
Yeah, I never got I never really got stuck with any of the those types of puzzles is what I will say. Maybe briefly, yeah. but they, they do the thing like I mentioned before where you can kind of talk to your party members and they'll they'll kind of nudge you. So, I I never got stuck for at least not for very long mm. if I did. And there's some there's like some cool little scenes and stuff and there's some cool mini games. There's a, there's a really neat bit in this section where you watch this puppet show oh, that yeah. has like a mini game attached to it and you kind of Mm-hmm. You can decide mm-hmm. the outcome of the puppet show, which is kind of cool. Like, decide how the story goes. That might be my favorite part mm. in some way. Like, that part was genuinely... Or just kind of a moment where, you know, I'm not quite sure what these mechanics are telling me, but they feel like they're telling me something. And, like, this whole part does feel thought through in kind of a, a more abstract, you know, structural way than maybe... Don't miss the mm. puppet show. That is my mm. advice for anyone playing this. Because I don't the- think you have to do it, right? It, I don't think just, so. Yeah, it's just kind of a thing that can happen. You have to first. like start. You have to get it started, like right. so that you so that the the story progresses. But I don't think you actually have to do anything with it. Yeah, while you're in the puppet show, the the guy that you trick into eating a hot dog leaves the scene, and so I think maybe you need to pop into it just to kind of transition time forward a little bit, uh, so that then you can get the password to get into the building that you need to. Eat, you know, a whole series of adventure yeah, yeah. game types adventure of things. Game. But, <laughs> The uh, the Shadow Puppet Show ends up introducing you to the uh, driving of the boat mechanic, which comes back at towards the very mm-hmm. end of the game. But this this felt very Kentucky Route Zero to me as well. Oh, yeah. It yes. reminded me a lot of driving the truck along the map or navigating the underwater or uh, underground um, riverways in Act Three. You, you kind of encounter some mysterious and strange things in these the corners of these uh, of these natural bayous and uh it was a very evocative section i would say i agree at the end of act one you meet super duck as Catherine, and you are immediately transitioned into act two uh super duck is at this point this is awful grotesque like a looks like a, a giant eagle kind of dripping with wires and mucus and this is interesting sense of like both a kind of mechanical conglo- conglomeration and also like a uh a lot of kind of biological elements as well. It's this great kind of monster design that continues to evolve as time goes on and the story progresses as well. Yeah. Act two begins with another section as K in which you meet private detective Matt LeBlanc or sorry, Brett LeBlanc. <laughs> Boy, that would, uh, that would be a very different type of game. Brett LeBlanc <laughs> at the bar. You learn of Lucky, the pipeline bomber. LeBanc knew Catherine and always felt like she was on to something. Uh, she was investigating some of the S.H.I.E.L.D. corporation, and uh, he is sympathetic to her cause, a friend of the family, and will join you on your adventure. I kind of picked up that maybe he had a little bit of a crush on Catherine. Yeah, could be. I mean, maybe not. It's not yeah. It's not super important, but that that was what it read like to me. Like, he, he was, he, he admired her in such a way that he was also attracted to her. Yeah, he's kind of got that. Uh, I mean, there's there's multiple long scenes with him sitting in the bar where he's obviously just spends far too much time in there and just tells sort of rambling drunk type stories. And the guy behind the bar is, you know, sort of fed up with his nonsense. And he talks to Kay and Kay has this, this kind of semi amusing thing where he's like, oh, I'm not going to tell you anything unless you buy me a drink. And you can just keep buying him drinks and food and it just stacks up along the bar in front of him to just keep <laughs> trying to get more and more information. But he's eventually at this at this point, he kind of just doesn't, you know, doesn't really want to do anything beyond just hinting at what's going on. But even so, like I he's 
he's a pretty decent person it seems like like he is he doesn't he doesn't try to screw you over like yeah. he you know he is helpful as as he can be he saves which, your life yeah yeah he he also saves your life he fights with you you know like or not fights against you but like yeah fights in your party yeah i mean he's he yeah you would see like he's kind of a, a roguish character you know like he's he's you would think maybe that he's not presented as like a good person but he he does seem to be a reasonably good person to me yeah yeah, yeah. he comes around if in he's the not second an angel act. or anything but if like you, he's... if you go back to the bar you can tell the bartender like nah we're pals now and he sort of shrugs <laughs> uh, yeah you're lost kid <laughs> i don't want to spend too much time with this dude <laughs> from here you go to duck's home we learn a little bit more about super duck as an uh, out of control evolution of duck's head drive which we talked about earlier duck informs k and this is duck is the name of a human i think we should mention because there are plenty of non-human characters duck is just like a, a normal guy he informs k that Catherine had been out on the lake investigating some shield uh types of uh, rigs out there and so again it's all kind of putting some of these pieces together that will end up paying off later on Apparently, Shield had made a network security error, and Duck's computer is now behind Shield's firewall, so he has some special access, but didn't really know what to do with it, and so was waiting for somebody who was perhaps a little bit more, maybe technically savvy, or at least knew the right questions to ask um, to before uh, exploiting that loophole. We end up meeting Lucky, retrieving his dog, and we have to get into the Shield oil refinery. That kicks us into a Catherine section in which. Superduck instructs Kathleen and Dallas to retrieve this glowing stone, this mystical object, the uh, the one that Catherine had seen out in the lake beforehand. Shield wants it. It seems that Claire Bionics wants it as well. Kenner John wants it. Superduck wants it. It's it seems to be a very important thing. We're not given a lot of information about it at this time. Um, we head to the mall, which is the headquarters of this Garrett's cult. The Garrett's won't let us inside. We have to find some sort of virtual sculptures before they will kind of trust us as a member of their group. It's like a geocaching game. We use like an AR function of our phone to go to specific areas and hold the phone over the environment to, to find these, these hidden virtual sculptures. I think this is one part of the game that the puzzles were actually like more complicated than than previously is this this is also the part where you climb up the building with the staircases that are kind of that's right yeah you have to do there's some weird like word number puzzles to go to specific floors or something and between that and between the actual actual finding out where the the other things are and seeing them there's a bit where i think it's not very well signposted that you have to look into your phone but then you also have to like tilt it upwards towards the sky and it's like a button that's not very obvious that you need to press on it or something I think this was the part that the puzzles kind of felt the least intuitive to me and actually gave me a little bit of trouble, whereas most of the game is just like exhaust all the dialogue options and figure out who you need to talk to next. Mm -hmm. And things tend to just happen. But this one is actually a little bit more kind of traditional puzzle puzzly that you have to be in specific locations and click on things. Um, but, you know, it's still nothing, nothing that's like game breakingly difficult. Back in, in Kay's timeline, we have to break into the refinery. In there, we find a giant robot suspended by a crane, and we are attacked by a drone priest, as you do. 
we get into a mansion which has a masquerade party going on. Uh, we learn of Kenner John's rocket and more about the Garrett, the Garrett's cult. Uh, we at this masquerade party, we go up to a like an upstairs office in which we find a shield executive who recognizes us and knows what happened to Catherine, our mother. Uh, she kills herself as soon as we leave the office. And then we go home and find a secret den behind some boxes in the attic. Million betrays us, and it seems like he previously betrayed Catherine as well. A lot happened in this particular chapter. Um, a lot of it is starting to get a little bit more kind of mysterious, and uh, and we're getting fewer and fewer answers as time goes on, though. I think this is where a bunch of the combat takes place as well, breaking into the refinery. That's true. Um, which, again, might mm-hmm. be slightly out of the ordinary for what you've expected from the game so far. So I can imagine this also Mm -hmm. being like a difficult chapter. Next, we have a Catherine section in which we record somebody saying a passphrase to get into the mall. We talk to the Garrett's inside and allow them to say some self-incriminating things that we then (laughs) play to a more overzealous Garrett. I think, is he the one that looks like Akuma from Street Fighter? I think there's one of them that is a spitting image. We, we end up, again, kind of tricking our way through this whole Garrett horde and finding ourselves on the other side of a large door in which a magnificent mechanical industrial cathedral awaits us with a floating orb of light. The orb goes to Catherine. Kenner John waits outside and spouts a bunch of biblical references. He is preparing an ark that will guide the Garrett's home. You get the sense of like a suicide cult type of work going on here and people that take the religious side of things far too seriously. It turns out that Papa was super invested in all of this religious stuff as well and spends uh, some time arguing with Kenner John, uh, playing a recording of Papa's voice to an acoustic lock in John's office reveals a bearded Garrett who had been locked inside of a casket or something. I, I was really starting to struggle with keeping up with exactly what was going on here. Um, any any details that anybody wants to add to this particular chapter? No, I mean, I think from here to the end of the game, really, it's it's a question of between Catherine and Kay, just kind of making your way to the top of this tower, mm-hmm. because Catherine's whole thing is that she had been engaged to look for this orb and, you know, how that affected her kind of research and her suspicions about something that is not right going on here. And then Kay is just kind of following in her footsteps, right? Like it's mm-hmm. it's not it's not really that Kay is is sets out to to um, discover this orb or to discover what's going on with the Garrets or with um, with Papa or whatever. She kind of gets drawn into it, following along after her mother, who has right. kind of left some breadcrumbs, but not not that much. You get the sense that you're really being kind of compelled by fate rather than your own choices. It's just kind of tragic in its own way. It's like um like the movie Hereditary, where the whole point of it is that you are. You are incapable of escaping fate once fate has chosen you for a particular task. Yeah. And in this case, fate is what Papa believes your heritage is. <laughs> and, you know, it's right. it's not necessarily that it's even real heritage. It's that you have been it's somebody else has decided this, like you said. Yeah, it's it's 
He's he's an interesting dude, Papa. <laughs> Act three, we are back in a K section and we'll remain in one for the rest of the game. We wake up back in LeBlanc's office. Uh, LeBlanc must have saved us from the uh, from the Million attack in the hidden room. We find once we go back to Million later, we find that he has been disabled, presumably by by LeBlanc. LeBlanc puts on some ICP makeup. Well, or if you're if you're me, LeBlanc's had the ICP makeup on all along. Oh, perfect. <laughs> you can put that on before you leave his office the first time. So. Oh, no kidding. Okay, great, great. Yeah, it's on his desk. <laughs> so I found that and it's like, do you want to put on the clown makeup? I'm like, I mean, yes, obviously. <laughs> and I was expecting it to go away eventually. It does not. This is part of his character. Yeah. We venture back to the hidden attic room and find that there's a military grade signal jammer. Seems like Catherine was uh, was really deep in her investigation of S.H.I.E.L.D. Uh, there is an AI backup of Catherine's consciousness on a head drive. Uh, AI Catherine tells us about SuperDuck and as a version distribution of Duck's consciousness. We go back to Duck's house to try to get some more information about this, which is now guarded by the Garretts. We find a way inside to find that he is not there. And we find a note saying that the Garretts have Blake tied up in the, in the lake in the swamp. And they have decapitated Kenner John, and John's eyes are glowing from beneath the water. I, I don't know. Yeah. I, I'm really struggling at this point. You're um, almost there, man. We, we race off to the lake system. Our truck's tires get stuck in the mud. We go to a nearby shack to find a boat. We find some people in, like, in there that are monitoring the lake using high-tech equipment. Uh, we and they we give take... you a thing that I totally forgot about. Does mm -hmm. do you do something with that? Or was I? I they I want you it. to like. Is that why I blew up? They want you to like monitor the frequencies of the super duck thing. Like I think it's sort of semi implied for whatever reason that the super duck that you found in the warehouse much earlier is now like crashed into the lake, and these mm -hmm. are possibly like still the people working for the gig economy who are following its orders. I mean, one of them is Dallas. I'm not sure if they say that they're Dallas. I think I think one of the yeah. characters refers to them as Dallas. But I think this is also the point where they either complain or you see somewhere that the, the cryptocurrency that they're getting from the Super Duck thing is like virtually worthless now. But for whatever mm. reason, they're <laughs> still trying to do something with it. Yeah, I, I took the frequency, but I never took it back to them. So I don't know if that actually does anything. Um, but I don't think yeah. it really has any effect on anything. It's just like that was, you know, to get the boat, you told them you were going to do it. A side so, quest. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. I don't yeah. think there's anything that forces you to. Do extra damage against the big monster at the end. We end up boating through these swamps and canals. We find a bunch of weird stuff underwater. We, uh, we find John's severed head with glowing eyes. Which is just great. It's just what I wanted. Uh, we find a giant eagle, of course, Super Duck, crashed into the swamp. Uh, we give it the glowing orb and its eyes shoot laser beams of light into the sky. I'm not sure if this actually is completely necessary to do or I think you've got to find okay. the... I mean, I guess they had to resolve the Super Duck thing somehow, but I'm not sure this is it. <laughs> Resol a resolution is like a strong word for what happens here. That's why I'm saying yeah. I'm not sure yeah. that this is a resolution, but I think that might be what it was intended to be. We find a huge conglomeration of highly militarized Garrett's awaiting the launch of the rocket. We trick a sniper into shooting a Garrett and sneak into the rocket in the confusion. Inside the rocket is like a, a whole world. It's kind of like a 
it recycles a lot of not recycles in a bad way, but like it, it's like a dreamlike space that uh, kind of like in control that reuses a lot mm. of previously seen places in a way that make it makes it seem like it's kind of drawing from your mm. memories, it's drawing from like the religious reality of the world, it's drawing from like the technology. Like there's there's a lot of the game that's kind of reincorporated into this very nightmarish interior space. Uh, we fight a 10 headed bird that, uh, hatches out of a giant egg. Um, it, we find Papa sitting on a holy throne with Blake tied up next to him. And your mother's uh, corpse and as well. I think the, that might not always be there depending on what yeah. you've done, but certainly in okay. my game, your mother's corpse was there. Yeah, mine was too. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. There's, there's any number of endings afterwards as well. I believe you can rescue Blake and then dive into the lake as the spaceship crumbles around us. Apparently, you can take a seat on the throne yourself. Uh, a lot that can happen here. So I found this out because I, I looked around a little bit afterwards. I didn't look into all the endings, but mm-hmm. I did look because I got the ending where I did not have a choice. I had to sit down. I could not click okay. on Blake because he just told me to stop. There are some things that you need to do to get the ability to rescue Blake, which is considered the good ending, I think. Um, And most of that is like when you are wandering around the Garrett compound, there's a guy who's like in a storage container. Mm -hmm. Basically, he tells you to go away unless you have I think you can either give him the monkey, like if you have the monkey at that point. Um, or you can, um, you met his dad earlier when you were out looking for the, um, uh, when you were out looking for the virtual sculptures, uh, as Catherine, you meet his dad, his dad's like, oh, I really want my son to come home, blah, blah, blah. So you can like, there's a whole thing where you can go over there. I did not do this. I read about this afterwards. You can go over there and like record his dad saying, oh, please come home, son, blah, blah, blah. And then if you play that for him, he will leave. But I think that the part about being able to actually rescue your brother and not blast off with Papa um, is tied to that guy in the cargo container, at least partially. I got the recording from the dad, but I played it to the big oaf guard and he just kind of chuckled and I forgot about it. <laughs> yeah, this is this is the guy who's supposed to be firing the rocket. So I think if you do this and get him right. to leave, the rocket doesn't take off in the same manner or something happens, which gives you the time to, to run and escape. Right. But yeah, it's yeah, kind of right. adventure game, kind of what feels like arbitrary stuff, especially considering that it feels like there's a lot of stuff in this game that doesn't really pay off as as you were saying a minute ago like not 100 percent sure about this but the thing with going back to the researchers with the the data from the the crash super duck and stuff like it seems like it's an important thing but you can just skip it and i'm not sure if it really makes any difference at all but this one does actually Mm. have a a massive change depending on how the ending then goes so yeah do your side quests people i just didn't see it coming because i the game had kind of lured me into Again, the the puzzles are not there, there's not a lot of stakes, right? You're you're not going to die and have to redo a challenge portion. So I was just like, okay, I'll sit. What happens? And then I got a little <laughs> achievement saying I finished the game. And I was like, well, I guess I'm done. And but I think I'll go back because I do want to see. Uh, he what told else me, yeah, he told me to sit down, and I was I'm like, I don't, I don't want to. Yeah, wanna let's see where this down. is going. I don't want to sit in the chair. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but but everything else I tried at that point, I don't know whether I could have left. Maybe I'm not sure. But um, but yeah, everything else I tried at that point, he would not let me do. So that is my mistake for trusting Papa so much. I guess yep. <laughs> turns out he's so. not that great of a dude. <laughs> 
Yeah, Who would have guessed weird. That? Well, my papa is a wonderful person, so I don't know. Any other details we want to give about the story in general before moving on? It's not so much a detail, but there's a part of me that is very intrigued to know, like they said that this is going to be a trilogy of games, like what they're mm-hmm. going to do with this. I mean, I sort of semi have to assume that it's going to have to be like anthology style, like different stories, maybe some of the same characters or like prequel type stuff. But I feel like it would be, I mean, maybe you can continue with the story of what happens with the Garrets and stuff after this and what happens with the, the refinery. But this is all so weird and esoteric and kind of a lot of it feels really dreamlike and illogical that I don't know where this particular storyline right. goes. It would be hard on. to start a story at this point. Yeah. 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 Um, but I'm very intrigued and I'm, yeah, I will give them the time of day when, when whatever these, this developer makes comes out. I mean, I didn't think it was possible to, to kind of do a follow up essentially to Hypnospace Outlaw, but hell, they put out a game this year that is totally different in every way, but it's kind of a sequel to Hypnospace. So if they can do it, mm-hmm. then I'm sure they can continue this story on. Let's go into some community correspondences. The first one is from Shields, who, uh, I don't know, maybe we can take this with a grain of salt. I think that's also the name of the antagonists of the game. So uh, let's, let's <laughs> see. But I think, it's a, I think it's a fairly glowing review. So <laughs> Shields from the forum says, the game sucked me in with three elements that shone throughout. The artwork is just the right level of beautiful and the right level of chunky pixels. On long play sessions, I could have sworn my brain was converting that resolution into a AAA-style 4K 60fps game. Such was the immersion. The music and sound was exemplary, feeling like a vaporwave soundtrack fed directly into a 1980s Blade Runner world. I've returned to it a lot. It was the reveal of Nillian, however, that really dragged me in. An incredible character, an element of the game, with a fantastic and horrifying payoff that I had been wondering about all game. The industrial espionage and distrust of big corporations is something in the DNA of the game. And the betrayal of the town via the lost hope of the characters you meet, beaten down by the oppressive industrial leeching, is well exploited in Kay's personal struggle with Million. I'd consider Norco to be somewhat of a psychological horror game, where the game's parts add up to a horrific personal tragedy and a horrific exploitation of misled townspeople brought into sharp focus in Kay's struggle. Sage and Onion Knight says, Atmospherically rich music, the madcap melancholy of writers like Thomas Pynchon and Haruki Murakami, a warped and haunted sense of nostalgia, I had already been excited about this because of the artwork and the superficial similarity to Kentucky Route Zero, but I was absolutely swept off my feet by the game itself. Rager, Rager, perhaps, says, Sadly, the ending didn't come together in the way that I wanted to. Characters I'd loved in the first two-thirds of the game were absent. Plot lines were left unresolved or rushed to a conclusion. And the long fight sequence at the end left a real sour taste. Julia2000 says, Norco has a great evocative start and eventually slowly muddles into a mid-to-poor adventure game with some cool art and a lot of really dated topical commentary. Maybe it's just that I've seen a lack of access to medical care and disaffected fascist youth movements impact too many of my friends and family to be interested in such a thin and often inaccurate portrayal. Maybe I'm just not personally interested in questions like, is this unhoused guy mentally ill, or is he truly seeing something, man? 
Maybe I think it's dumb to have an adventure game puzzle where you have to trick real fascists into sniping wannabe fascists via your inventory. A big, str- a big shrug. Not for everyone there. And one last piece of correspondence from Deadpool Negative, who says, The operative word for how I felt after completing Norco last year, thanks to the power of Xbox Game Pass, was haunted. Kay is haunted by her mother's death, by her estrangement from her brother, by seeing ecological and economic collapse of Norco and Louisiana. Kay's haunted by the memories that never quite come together, haunted by the empty streets and people she barely recognizes anymore, haunted by lost souls turning into cultish madness to find some sort of meaning, haunted by the thought that she's not in a world that's dying but has already died. I'm dating myself here, but Norco reminded me of the adventure games of the 80s, most notably of Sierra's Manhunter in New York. That game had a very different plot. It was about an alien occupation of the title city. What's exactly going on in Norco is meant to be somewhat ambiguous. There might be aliens, there might not be. Spoiler, there probably aren't. But like Manhunter, there's a feeling of the city of Norco being in the grip of something, and it creates this mood of malaise that's hard to shake. Norco isn't entirely successful. Parts of the narrative feel very drawn out, especially in the middle, and the conclusion can't help but feel majorly anticlimactic, even if an anticlimax is fitting for such a bleak story. Still, I look forward to what the developers pull off next. Three-word reviews every week before our recording, we post on our Twitter a call out for three-word reviews. If you can summarize the game in just three words, and we will read them out here on the show. Leah, if you can get us started with Blue Weasel Breaths. Yes, Blue Weasel Breath says, beautiful, terrible SEO. WTFDYW pod says, pixel pushing perfection. Scenario 82 says, mysterious mystical realism. Great. So all that is left is our summaries. I'll probably start us off because I think I'm the, I'm the coldest on this particular game. For some reason, this game didn't really go down for me in the same way that very similar games did. And I'm I'm really struggling to understand why. I think there's a lot of details about the story that are things that I struggle with in media already, things that make me very uncomfortable. I, I like a good bleak movie from time to time, but I think there is a certain threshold for bleakness that uh, s- starts to kind of uh, to kind of wear on me after a little while. I, I tend to not like stories about cults. Cults make me very uncomfortable. Uh, and then this kind of sense of like inescapable religious horror is something that like I can kind of go either way with. I don't think it's the Southern Gothic type of setting because I'm I'm a huge fan of Kentucky Route Zero. I really love uh, Where the Water Tastes Like Wine. Like there's a lot of very similar games that Definitely hit the right spot for me. But yeah, for some reason, I, I I got in with the first third of the game, I would say. And then after that, I just started to, I think, just feel a little bit more kind of pushed out by those elements of the story that uh, uh, that didn't really gel with me. But I, I respect this game tremendously. I recognize amongst the reception that I've seen to the game, I'm kind of in a minority opinion. And I don't really even have anything bad to say about the game. It's just really not one that... Uh, that gripped my soul personally, but um, but tremendous amount of respect anyway. So anyways, Jesse, how about you? I mean, I guess I'm a little more positive, but I'm also I was a little nonplussed. Uh, I did enjoy the beginning a lot. I think that the 
the complaint that one reader had about like, you know, the point and click puzzle at the end where you get a guy shot. Uh, that didn't in and of itself, that didn't bother me hugely, but did point to, again, there's a real tension trying to tell, deal with serious topics through this sort of format. And, you know, I don't know, Stephen Sondheim wrote a musical about assassins. Like, you know, there's ways to combine these things, but it's, it's tricky. And again, the, the fact that this game really punts on every possibility at sort of having any verbs or mechanical metaphors, I think is a sign that this is not a strength of the design team, at least as of yet. You know, I'm glad I played it and I'm glad uh, it had a lot of I, I very much enjoyed. I was very happy when it back went back to Catherine. Um, and if it hadn't kind of jumped back and forth between those two characters, I think it would have been a much lesser game. Mm-hmm. I think a, a lot of what I did get out of it was less about the, the fantastical plot or anything and more just kind of triangulating between those two characters you know, what what Catherine thought of her daughter reading that, you know, you can read the little text messages on their phone. Yeah, I think I think in that sense, I think that was strong. And, and if they do, I don't know if sequels make sense in the sense of right exploring the Super Duck uh, cinematic universe or whatever. <laughs> I would like to see more characters and more sort of, you know, maybe a, a slightly bigger game, because if it had the scale of something like Disco Elysium, maybe you would see more of a sense of community and more interaction in the, in that way. Thank you very much. Leah, how about you? So I think that a lot of people's reaction to this game and whether it sticks or not with them will depend on how much you can kind of relate to the setting. And I don't mean that you have to have grown up in a place that was similar to this or that you have to directly have experience with it even. But if if you are not interested in this kind of setting, if you are not interested in kind of the struggle that is depicted in a lot of the background of Norco, then this might not be something that catches you. I think that the game itself, the gameplay wise, is pretty good. Uh, I've mentioned that there are a couple of things that might not have been necessary, and that might be something that a follow up would improve upon. Uh, maybe not. Maybe they, maybe other people thought that that was more successful than I did. I don't think that there's anything that I really just straight up didn't like about the gameplay elements. Uh, there were just things that I, I, I would have maybe left out if I if I personally were trying to kind of map things or if I were trying to recommend pieces that I thought didn't work quite as well. They did try a lot. There are a lot of different types of mini games and and segments and storytelling methods here. And I for my money, I think a lot of it did work. And I I felt pretty connected um and I just I, I think that a lot of people will probably get a lot out of the story with the caveat that, I mean, I, I joked about it earlier. This is not a feel good game like there. Mm-hmm. You, even if you get what is considered to be the good ending, this is a really dark game. And that's that's not, also not going to be for everybody. Uh, and, and that's totally fine. But if you do enjoy things like Kentucky Route Zero, like Disco Elysium, uh, like Citizen Sleeper. Uh, I think that there is a pretty good chance that you will also enjoy this. Um, 
obviously not 100%, as as uh, Ryan specifically has mentioned, but I, I think it's worth a try, especially if you have access to it uh, via Game Pass. Uh, it is still on Game Pass, so um, you can, you can uh, check it out if you have any interest in that and you haven't played it already. Yeah, I mean, I, I so I guess my my ultimate summary is going to be that I liked it. I thought that it uh, it said a lot and um and and held my interest really well. I don't think that that's going to be true for everybody, and that's that's okay. It doesn't have to be. And John, I think you're the most positive amongst us. So uh, why don't you round us out with your with your review? Yeah, I think that's quite likely. I mean, I suspect that my my thoughts are probably pretty similar to what Leah said basically I think that this is this is a game that does some really interesting things that don't tend to be particularly common don't don't come up in a lot of games and a lot of the themes and stuff that we see here are, are things that people shy away from in some ways and I think that there's you know there's a good reason for that and that can also like massively affect your your opinion of it like I think one of the correspondents Julia 2000 was saying do we really need to have kind of, I mean, essentially like, do we need to have jokes pointed at the fact that, you know, a bunch of people who in the real world would be like sort of Elon Musk fans and stuff are basically just sort of incel losers who actually aren't really interested. And they're just kind of nihilistic kids who are, you know, to the point where, you know, one of the major side quests that affects the game is like, do you help this, this kid, um, you know, actually, regain their their sort of path in life and go back to their family instead of being in this mad what seems like a suicide cult and it's like a lot of that stuff is very on the nose and i think it's it's prescient in some ways but also it's very easy to overdo those sorts of things and it's also very easy to be the sort of person who's just like i just don't want to think about this stuff like it's too close to home it's too kind of real world and the stuff that they talk about in this game is all very like that the idea of this town that's been just devastated by the the rampant capitalism and industry that's taking place in it while you know the kind of head honchos are kind of laughing and making jokes and having a, a sort of a nice wide shut masquerade ball is very very close to home and yeah i i totally get if that's that's not where you come to for video games or even if you think it's tasteless or something um but i think for me the the kind of the combination of the way that some of the writing is written in this game, like some of the, the text and the flavor text and stuff is, is very evocative tied in with the music and some of the background visuals, particularly, particularly some of the pixel art landscapes and things are, are very, very pretty. And I think that there's an element where the game does kind of, it flips back and forth between these two timelines and these two stories, which kind of makes it feel quite fresh and it, you know, it, it, the points that it cuts off are all points where I was thinking, oh man, I really want to, I want to continue this and play through this next section so that I can get back and see where this, this sort of almost cliffhanger was, was going previously. And I think, I think there is a, a good reading that it kind of diverges a little bit too much into kind of nonsensical things towards the very end, specifically that last K chapter probably is a little bit too ridiculous and outlandish but i think beyond that the developers here especially for like a, a small team with their first game have put out something that's genuinely very different from the vast majority of the gaming landscape and it, it ties in with 
lots of other games that I have really enjoyed similarities with Disco Elysium and Citizen's Sleeper and Kentucky Route Zero are, you know, sort of apt and they are all games that I've really enjoyed. So I'm always up for playing like smaller games by smaller teams and things with interesting kind of thematic viewpoints. So I'm very interested to see what happens after this. I'll definitely be keeping an eye on um on the team's next games, especially if they are somehow like direct sequels to this. But for for whatever your kind of preference with it, I think it's it's at least worth checking it out and at least seeing some of the opening stuff before you decide that it's not for you. So I, w- I would heartily recommend it for anybody who's at all interested in what we've been talking about. Fantastic. I like it. A good spread of opinions, but all with a lot of respect for the actual game itself and a lot of the talent that went into it. So a uh, very interesting game. Thank you for joining us in our discussion of it. I've been Ryan, and I will continue to be. And thank you as well to Leah, Jesse, and John, who have uh, done a great job of helping to disentangle some of the uh, some of the complications that this uh, magical realist story has uh, put in front of us. Uh, thank you as well to our correspondents, plus, of course, you for listening. Next time, in issue 597, we go back to the Like a Dragon franchise, as it's now known. Yakuza 6, The Song of Life. 